Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Gold Podcast. I'm your host, Isabel, and I'm joined, as ever, by my co-host, Jade. How are you doing, Jade? Hello. Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. Although I'm a bit nervous because I'm giving blood for the first time later on today, so I've been prepping myself for that. Oh, that is such a great thing to do. I really need to sign up to do that myself. You've been doing a lot around blood recently, haven't you? A haematology infographic? Yes, I have. And a feature coming up as yeah, well. Indeed, I've, all this haematology has really spurred me on to do it, I think. Um, <laughs> you'll have to join me next time. Uh, but aside from all of that, what have we got coming up in today's episode? Well, we won't be talking directly about haematology today, but today's guest is heavily involved in the haematology space. So today we're going to be talking with Dr Ian Winburn, who is the Vice President and Global Medical Lead for Rare Haematology at Pfizer. Let's get into it. So let's hear a little bit about Ian. He is originally from a surgical background, having spent 11 years as a surgical registrar and biomedical researcher in the NHS. And he's also practiced clinically in New Zealand, where he completed his PhD at the University of Otago. But in terms of his pharma career, Ian has been at Pfizer for all of it. Uh, he's been with the company for the past 13 years, where he now specialises in the field of rare diseases. And throughout his career at the company, he's worked in local, regional and global roles. And he has a real passion for bringing together science and clinical practice. And is very proud to be continuously working on improving the lives of people with rare haematological conditions. Now you've heard a bit more about Ian. Let's hear from the man himself. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you very much for coming in today. We have Ian live in the studio, which is very exciting. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me, Isabel. Great to be part of this. Absolutely. So, Ian, you're coming in today to discuss expectation versus reality in rare diseases. So we all know rare diseases present unique challenges for patients, their families and healthcare systems. But today we want to dig into what the challenges pharma may face in this area. So the reality of how these medicines are developed, approved and marketed can be very different to any other therapy area. And I want to know what some of these nuances are and how some of these challenges can be addressed. So Ian, I think let's start at the beginning yeah. of the life cycle. And can you talk me through how can the expectation of developing treatments for rare diseases differ from the realities of that development process? Sure. So I think working in rare diseases, it's a very privileged space to work in. There clearly is huge unmet medical need. There are patient populations that have not really been served historically by um, medicine and having multiple therapeutic options available to them. So working in rare diseases and having the opportunity to develop medicines for those who need them comes with huge privilege. And when you then take a step back, you'd say, well, actually, some of this should be relatively straightforward. There's clearly populations with huge unmet need. There are clearly efficacy and safety thresholds that need to be hit. But at the same time, you know, you'd say that you've got a good chance of being able to design, develop and execute a trial that's going to be able to achieve that. But then reality sort of hits <laughs> reality home hits. <laughs> because quite often you're talking about very small patient populations. So just being able to identify and understand the epidemiology of the disease that you are 
wanting to investigate, that can have its challenges. And similarly, because patient numbers are often small, recruitment can certainly be a challenge. Um, but at the same time, you know, partnering with patient advocacy organisations to ensure that trials meet the needs of patients as well as pharma is really very important. Mm -hmm. And certainly I have experience working with our clinical development groups where the patient voice is very much brought in to clinical trial design so that we can have a trial that is at least going to be, uh, well, more than acceptable to patients and that they would want to enroll and be part of it. But I think like all these things, you start off with this great hope, then reality hits, but through working with great people, through working with really motivated teams and having huge expertise around you, you can really push to make these trials happen, recruit, and ultimately, you hope, deliver great results. And you touched on there about trials and designing them appropriately for patients. And obviously with rare diseases, sometimes using placebo arms and doing trials that way may not always be appropriate for that disease. Um, and real-world data, real-world evidence has the potential to really help with that and offer a new route. Obviously, there's a lot of potential. Where are we now with that side of things? And kind of what's your vision for the future? How could that transform that development process? Sure. I, I think... Ultimately, when you're talking about pivotal trials, still classical intervention or clinical trial design is at the forefront. Uh, that's not to say that real-world data can't be used and isn't used in certainly regulatory agencies, EMA, FDA, they have very clear guidance how real-world data can be used for label enabling or label enhancing research. But again, it comes with its challenges. Um, I think in many ways there is an assumption that there's actually a scarcity of real-world data in rare diseases. I think in practice there is probably quite a lot of real-world data, but it's very disparate mm -hmm. and it's very decentralised and quite often it is data on investigators' computers or laptops or what have you, rather in central databases and what have you. And also the data is not necessarily linked to other data sets. So I think the vision would be with real-world data that you would in some way be able to take all this disparate data, either tokenize it or centralize it in such a way so that it could pull through mm -hmm. and really be used in an end-to-end -end fashion. Because I think that's something that would be you know, of huge benefit to the rare disease community that real-world data could be part of pivotal investigational uh, uh, trials, but that same data set will continue in a longitudinal fashion post-authorization and when patients in the real world are utilizing a medicine or, or, or the like. But it's a huge area of focus, not just for pharma, but also for the regulatory agencies and many who work in sort of the data space. And I think the emergence of uh, technology and, and particularly decentralized data collection uh, is really going to bring this further forward. Mm. That was going to be my next question. Whose responsibility <laughs> is it to kind of drive this forward? But I guess it's just a kind of combination of all the stakeholders. Yeah, I, I think what I've come to realize is you cannot do this alone. Uh, 
um, you know, this isn't for pharma, for industry to do in isolation. I don't think you can achieve that. I think the best examples where we've had success in collecting real-world data has been in partnership with academia, with patient advocacy, with clearly the clinical community and obviously industry being part of that. And I think the other thing to say is that the era of having, as it were, therapeutic level data, I think in rare diseases, you know, is over. You've got to be thinking at a class level, which also means to say that industry needs to work with industry. And it is that collaboration, along with, as I say, that, that, that collaboration with the community as a whole, which I think will get us to a point where we really do have very exciting real-world data sets to utilise. I imagine collaboration between companies must be more important in rare diseases than many other areas because we're talking about such small patient populations and kind of microcosms of research. Would you agree with that? Yeah, 100%. And I think you have to, you know, take the higher road, as it were. I think disparate data sets in rare diseases are, they're not the ideal situation to be in. If you can bring data together, it gives you the opportunity to identify in a rare population events that are also rare. Now, in disparate data sets, if it's not all brought together, the likelihood of you observing such events becomes really very, very slim. And it's just a numbers game. If you can combine data sets and you can work together, then I think you end up with stronger data sets. And I think the other point here is around having core data sets as well. Uh, identifying what is critical to collect versus what's nice mm -hmm. to have. And, you know, start with what you need and then obviously build to it. And I think that as a principle in, in, in general is, is, is something to follow. Mm, really interesting. The next thing I wanted to talk to you about was orphan drugs. So these are drugs that obviously without government help or incentives, it would be a struggle to make them profitable. Once these drugs are developed and approved, though, what challenges do you have in creating effective go-to-market content and strategies for them? I think in many ways, once you have an orphan medicine that has been approved and been through the development process and has received more market authorization and maintenance of its orphan designation, actually, I'm not convinced it's actually vastly different to a traditional non-rare disease medicine. I think clearly... Go-to-market content in pharma is obviously fair, balanced, and evidence-based, and therefore the data that sits behind claims, you know, it still needs to have the same level of robustness and, and appropriateness, and have those studies been done? Are they powered in the same way? Are the end numbers? They're clearly very different to what you get, let's say, in, in primary care studies. But the 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 requirements, I would say, of go-to-market content, they don't change. And it's still of that high-level content. I think what maybe does differ is the audience, per se. Quite often in rare disease, you know, it's the same, for example, clinician who is also the investigator, who is also the KOL, who's also the prescriber, who is also involved in the patient advocacy organization. These are small communities of experts. So 
when you're thinking, let's say, in a multi-channel approach when it, it comes to sort of go-to-market content, quite often your target audience is the same and you've therefore got to be quite cognizant that you're not bombarding through multi-channel or omni-channel the same content in, in different ways. So you've got to be sensitive to that, really to understand that journey that your stakeholders are on, where they have their touch points. But but I think the principles are, are very similar, actually, to traditional medicine. Yeah, that's really interesting. But I suppose if there is this small handful of experts, a lot of them will already know about this drug. It's not like it's going to be complete news to them when it suddenly comes on the market. They're going to have an awareness of it earlier on in the life cycle. Sure. Is that a massive benefit then, rather than having to go in and be like, this is something we've been working on for ages and would you like to take a look at it? Yeah, so we're speaking very generally here about mm. rare diseases and not all rare diseases are the same. Some, mm. you know, diagnosis is, is very straightforward. It might be diagnosis, you know, at birth through neonatal screening. But at the same time, there are many, many rare diseases that are really challenging from a diagnostic perspective. And there are patients who are walking around with rare diseases that probably might not necessarily have been diagnosed at that point in time. And, and I can certainly think of many examples in the rare cardiology space which would sort of fit that description. Mm -hmm. So I think there is still a huge education that needs to take place um, with clinicians. But of course, those key opinion leaders who have been our partners in the development programs all the way through from early life cycle, it's then a very different approach. But um, I, I would just say that you 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 tailor make your approach. Obviously, the the, the therapy area that you're working in. Mm. And you mentioned there that no rare disease is the same, which is very true. And I think no rare disease has the same community behind it. I mean, obviously, some rare diseases affect a handful of people. Um, and patient advocacy is such a big part of rare diseases, but not every rare disease has a patient advocacy group. You've touched on it already a bit throughout our discussion, but how can these advocacy groups really help for you guys in pharma, but also for the patients? They are, without a doubt, I think, the most important stakeholder that exists within the rare disease community. Because quite often these patient advocacy organizations are built up from families or patients who have lived and experienced living with that rare disease. So they create a sense of community. They often are seen as the reliable source of information. And they certainly play a huge role in ensuring that those people who live with a rare disease have the opportunity to be educated, informed, so that they can get the best available treatment options offered to them at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Now, in practice, I think most rare diseases actually do have some form of advocacy organization behind them. And the scale of them, that differs vastly, you know, from literally sort of mom and pop style uh, uh, advocacy organizations to huge multinational organizations and again it's a reflection on you know not just the, the size of a, a, a rare disease but also uh, maybe the prominence it's had in terms of research and development or 
opportunities to really move the treatment paradigm across. But I think for us within pharma, working with patient advocacy, again, it's a very privileged thing. It's something that you know is regulated and we do in the right way. But at the same time, is it brings huge amounts of insight into drug development, discovery, but also then the post-approval activities. Mm. And those insights, you know, aren't just around patient journey, but they're there around what the real need is. You know, I think patient preference studies, patient preference work is, is becoming more and more foundational in rare diseases, truly understanding what are the characteristics or attributes of a potential therapeutic intervention that is going to make the biggest difference to a patient population mm. and quite often it's the patient advocacy organizations that are providing you know people to take part in those sorts of of uh, patient preference studies so I, I can't stress enough how important it is for pharma for industry but the whole development community to listen and to work with advocacy. Mm. But particularly important in rare diseases, I imagine. Very important in rare diseases, but I would go as far to say beyond, because, you know, we are in industry, it's beholden on us to bring solutions to problems that patients and people who live with disease need solving. The ones that matter. Exactly. And where best to gain the truest insight, the truest honesty about what is needed than from the patient. And I think if we deliver against a patient narrative, mm. then we are going a long, long way to making the lives of people who live with rare diseases or any disease better. And that's why we do the job that we do. There are other stakeholders clearly who need to be satisfied along that journey, internally and externally. But I think if we look after the patient first, all the rest falls into play. Orbit around that one compass point. 100%. Lovely stuff. Well, we've kind of discussed where we're at now in rare diseases in a couple of different stages of the life cycle there. But I want to look towards the future now. Yeah. What do you think are the key things? This is, again, very broad. For industry to focus on when we look at the future of rare disease research and treatment, what are challenges maybe that exist now that you'd love to see being solved in 10, 20 years? Um, I think we've touched on some of this already. I think certainly, you know, really efficient clinical trial design, mm -hmm. execution that's patient-centric, that utilizes real-world data, if possible, at the earliest opportunity. Mm. Uh, I think having research that is as least burdensome and onerous on patients is certainly the way that you'd like to go in the future. And I think everybody wants to cut cycle times. Everyone wants to bring medicines to those people who need them faster because there isn't time to wait. Uh, time is a very, very valuable commodity to those who are waiting. And when the unmet need is so great, the urgency that is instilled in all of us is, is magnified. Mm -hmm. So I think 
finding ways to do things quicker, while at the same time maintaining the rigor and maintaining um, all the necessary you know, checks and balances that go in to ensure that you've got the highest quality program. That's what we want to solve for. And it's not an easy thing to solve for because there are inherently, um, you know, timelines that are, are and constraints that are put on research in general. But how we can creatively work to move things as quickly as possible, I think that that would be a great win for the future. That would really make an impact. Massively so. Ian, I can tell you're very passionate about the area that you work in, especially as you were talking about it just then. I wonder if you could share an example with the audience of something you've worked on. It could be a project, it could be a disease awareness campaign that you're particularly proud of or you know, how you feel like you've really made a difference in your career to someone with a rare disease. Yeah, I think we touched on it maybe a little bit earlier when we talk about working collectively with the community. You know, I've worked... Uh, certainly for a number of years in the haemophilia space. And uh, there are a number of new medicines that are coming into this space and some that require, you know, potentially 15 years worth of follow-up post-approval, you know, novel mechanisms of action. And collecting data on patients for 15 years is no easy thing in the real world. And many of the existing mechanisms that were available weren't going to satisfy that need. So, you know, working with patient advocacy organizations, global patient advocacy organizations, with the clinical community, with other members of industry, we were able to found a global registry, a true class-based registry that is best placed now to collect this data going forward. And... That registry has gone live. The first patients are going to be enrolling in it. And, uh, you know, I think that I look back at as being a very proud moment because we started those conversations with those stakeholders almost four years ago. And it's taken pretty much four years to take concept to reality. And it's required leadership from all those stakeholders. I, I, I said, I mentioned it earlier, we couldn't do it alone. It would have been impossible for industry to do it alone. It's required the leadership of advocacy working with the clinical community, the academic community in partnership with industry to make it happen. And I do want to stress, it's not just industry turning up with a checkbook. It's not support like that. It's actually being round the table to define the right data sets that serve the needs of all stakeholders, patients, clinicians, and industry, and ultimately regulators. So there were, that there was a win-win solution put here. And I think that is something that I'm very proud of. And uh, I think ultimately, you know, the whole haemophilia community will benefit from going forward. Sounds hugely positive, Ian. Thanks for sharing that. So that almost rounds off my questions for you for today. But every season we are asking our guests to have a personal reflection uh, on a question and what it is this season. In what motivates you to get up each morning? What gets you jumping out of bed? 
and maybe not to the office, but to your computer, as we were discussing <laughs> earlier. And what is something that can keep you awake at night? What is a challenge that sometimes you mull over and you're not quite sure what the answer to it might be? I think ultimately what, what, what makes me leap out of bed in the morning is uh, it's not just the alarm clock. <laughs> no, it is that sense of urgency. Mm. Uh, it is the fact that those patients who have huge need, they do not have time to wait. On a personal level, you know, sadly, I lost both my mother and father uh, at different stages to, to different diseases. And the irony of it in both of their cases was, had they been around for another six, nine months or so, the likelihood is, the strong likelihood is, they wouldn't have passed away either as quickly or may still be alive today. And for me, that really focuses me that days matter. And days are made up of hours, and hours obviously are made up of minutes, and every second counts. So I leap out of bed in the morning because I need every second to do what I'm doing. And ultimately, to be supporting all the work that we do within an industry to find solutions for those who need it. In terms of challenges, in terms of what keeps me up at night, you know, the obvious thing to say is, look, there's so much that needs to be done. How can we do it all? But so that, that isn't really necessarily what keeps me up at night. But it, it is then the prioritization that I think we are all, you know, in the real world, asked to face day in, day out. You are making prioritization decisions. And you have to focus on solving those prioritization decisions based on the greater good. But that's not an easy thing to reconcile because at the end of every decision is ultimately, you know, a patient, a patient community, a patient's family. Mm -hmm. And it would be wonderful to be in a situation where we didn't need to make those prioritization decisions uh, and hopefully through efficiencies through innovation through technology we will be able to do more in less time and that ultimately I think will make a huge difference for those who need it. Ian thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure Isabel it's been great to be here. Really great interview there. Rare disease research is certainly in need of bolstering. Do you have any specific highlights you can pull out from your conversation, Isabel? Well, on your point to bolstering, I think clearly there are challenges in rare diseases, but there has been a huge amount of progress as well. But I think the need for a system that can collect, store and make patient data easily accessible really was the highlight for me when Ian was talking about that and how in rare diseases every patient counts and talking about how vital it is that important knowledge isn't lost on an investigator's computer or so on. That was a really interesting point for me and clearly a, a point of focus for the future for, for industry. Mm, certainly something that we hope to see in the future. But sadly, that does bring us to the end of today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Ian for joining us today. That's right. So do be sure to tune in next week where we'll be speaking to Rick Hollis, a customer and business excellence director at Ipsen about the future customer engagement model. 
very interesting. Indeed it will be. And that's not all. We'll also be sharing an exclusive teaser of our upcoming Catalyst interview with Andreas Konieczny, VP and Head of Medical Affairs Europe at Immunogen. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on that one. Definitely not one to be missed. But until then, it is goodbye from us. See you next time. Bye.